This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Kia ora e te whanau. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Edamon, your host for the New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies podcast. Uh, I hope you're all doing well, especially in Aotearoa, New Zealand, where we are going through some growing pains dealing with the pandemic at the moment. I find the best thing to do for me during lockdown is to read a lot of books, and then listening to the authors uh, talk about those books. But I'm in a privileged position to be able to actually talk to the authors. So today we are talking to Mark Beery. Um, His new book, uh, Queer Existence, uh, is a major documentary project that uses photographic portraiture and oral history to record the life experiences of a group of 27 gay men born since the passing of the Homosexual um, Law Reform Act in 1986, which is a major milestone in New Zealand legislative history. Uh, Welcome, Mark. Thank you, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for your invitation. Yes, so um, Mark, just to start with, can we please have uh, for the listeners some uh, some background? What, what is your background and how did you become uh, a writer, a photographer, and, and what, what then led you to uh, this project? Yes, so I've had two parallel careers for the last 20 odd years or so. My initial training was in medicine and I uh, graduated in medicine in 1990 and qualified as a specialist physician. So I worked in hospitals uh, around New Zealand for nearly 30 years. Alongside that, I've developed a parallel career as a photographer and writer. So I went to art school initially in 2001, I think it was. I started at the Elam School of Fine Arts in Auckland, and I completed a Bachelor of Fine Arts then. And later on, back in 2012, I went on and did a Master of Fine Arts, and that was the basis or the point of origin of this this project. The first few interviews and photographs that I did for this project were the um, the basis of my Master of Fine Arts degree. Cool. So um, what um, motivated you to have a pictorial and oral history together because we, we don't usually do that uh, or see that in regular oral, oral history writing. Well, as, as I've said, my background was in photography. So I started off by taking photographs and I did a, a book, a previous book of mine was called Men Alone, Men Together, which came out in 2010. And that was about gay men and their relationships. I photographed uh, 15 single guys and uh, 14 couples and one threesome. And that book 
was published by Steele Roberts Publishers more than 10 years ago now. And that was, the ba- that was based on my final year's work for my Bachelor of Fine Arts degree. So I started off by photographing these people. And initially, it was almost uh, alongside the photographs that I interviewed them. One of my sources of inspiration, uh, and perhaps uh, people with a, a knowledge of New Zealand photography will, will recognise this, was a book called Working Men by uh, Glenn Bush, which came out in the 1980s and featured wonderful uh, black and white photographs of guys in manual occupations. And alongside that were, were interviews talking about their experiences uh, in life. And that was one of my earliest sources of inspiration. So that was what I was drawing on. And there is actually, in, in photography, there is quite a long tradition of collections of photographs with interviews or with um, first-person narratives from the people photographed. So I was drawing on that tradition. And then when I came to do this current book, um, A Queer Existence, I was working within that model. And although taking the photographs was a a key part of the work I was doing, hearing these guys' stories and making their stories available and putting them on record was another key part of that. So in terms of my work, I've always worked with both text and image, and that seems to be the way that my like my practice has developed yes it, it was um it was a a great experience to uh, to read the book because uh, the the f- photographs are um right at the at the start after the history section after the introductory section and then uh, this uh, the uh, all the, the stories come in and what I found myself doing was that I went through each and every picture. And then after I read the story, I went back and looked at the picture uh, again. Um, I don't know why, but it, it was like I had known the person more now. So I can, it, it's not just a, just a static photograph and it has a history behind it. So that was, um, that was quite fantastic. Now to, uh, to start with, um, as far as uh, the history is concerned, and you you have kind of milestoned it around the uh, Homosexual Re- Re- um, uh, uh, Reform Act um, in 1986, um, can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Why was that point? Yes. So before homosexual law reform, um, sexual acts between men in Aotearoa, New Zealand, were illegal. And that had been part of the history since, uh, since the colonial era. Um, the evidence we have is that in pre-colonial times, Maori attitudes towards same-sex intimacy were, uh, were accepting and welcoming. And we have the word uh, takatapui, which means an intimate companion of the same sex, which is the, the Maori word or the indigenous word uh, that has, was used in pre-colonial times as it is thought and has been re- revived uh, in the last recent decades. But during the colonial era, sex between men was, was outlawed and made illegal, and that persisted. And obviously, during the... 60s and 70s, there was an increasing awareness of, if you like, um, the, the, the rights and the importance of, of allowing liberty to particularly gay men, but lesbian women as well. And as I describe in the introduction, the beginnings of a campaign for reform in, in the law um, date back to the... Um, to the, I'm just checking the dates. Um, I'm sorry to pause a moment to. No, that's all right. Yeah, yeah. 1962, uh, the Dorian Society was formed in, in Wellington. Uh, that was the first, it was called a homophile organization. And that became the precursor of the first um, 
New Zealand Homosexual Law Reform Society, uh, which was really founded in 1963. So that's the beginnings of a campaign for law reform. And it really took off during the 70s with the gay liberation era, and then coming through into the early 1980s, the AIDS epidemic also um, had a huge impact on gay men and their lives in New Zealand, but was also part of the driver for law reform. One of the, uh, one of the paradoxes uh, about the fact that sex between men was technically illegal was that with the onset of the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s and the realisation that condom use could help prevent the transmission of HIV, the New Zealand Health Department was unable to mount an effective public health campaign, was unable to promote condom use because they would have been viewed as promoting an illegal activity. Mm. So that was another part of the driver. But the, there had been a few attempts at, at law reform prior to the, um, the act that was passed in 1986. Uh, and they had they had failed for various reasons, but the um, the campaign uh, really took off uh, in 1984 and 1985 when a member of parliament, Fran Wilde, was approached by the gay community and asked to sponsor a, a bill to promote law reform, and that was that was led to the uh, the homosexual law reform bill that was introduced to parliament in 1985 and then was passed in 1986. Mm. So that's a sort of encapsulated historical background. So um, a couple of things that intrigued me uh, in terms of the roadblocks to uh, opening up or uh, the legislation through the Homosexual Law Reform um, Act, um, one of the things you mentioned was the age of consent. Um, can you elaborate how how did that how did that affect the the slow progress uh, through the two years that uh, this this law reform took to pass? Yes, so there were different schools of thought. There was a more, if you like, a more radical school of thought that advocated very strongly that uh, sex between men or homosexual sex should be treated exactly the same as heterosexual sex. In other words, the age of consent, which was 16 for uh, sex between male and female, should be exactly the same for sex between men. There was another more uh, conservative group that would have been perhaps more comfortable with the the British model where um, the age of consent had been set at 20 or 21 in in the first instance. And there was a, a more as I said, conservative group of people who would have been happy with that. And so there were different, different groups mm. uh, or different, different opinions. But in the end, the, the body of opinion that carried the day was, was the one that said that uh, sex between men should be treated exactly the same as, as um, heterosexual sex. And I think that was really important in the end in saying that this is not something that is, needs special treatment, uh, that this is a, something that should be regarded as, as part of the spectrum of, of human activity and human rights, and that gay people should be regarded in law as no different from anyone else. Yes, it was uh, quite interesting reading through the history and uh, um, essentially it hasn't been because I did some background research and um, there's uh, uh, there's deep dives into uh, the time of the um, the uh, law reform, but uh, uh, not as much as mainly news based um, stories. Now, the the time um, when we're talking about the 50s and the 60s, you kind of uh, differentiate the New Zealand movement and the US movement. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on, on those uh, differences and um, how we uh, adopted or how it helped New Zealand? Yes, I guess we're talking perhaps in the first instance about 
Well, if, if we want to get into the history, there was there were, if you like, two waves. There was what they call the homophile movement, which was um, really dates back in the United States back to the 1950s and in New Zealand to the 60s, which was more about promoting, um, wanting to promote a, a, the 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 impression or or, or the image of gay men or it would have been homosexual mm. would have been the term used then mm. as uh, decent and respectable and well-adjusted members of society and so the idea or the emphasis was on um, avoiding scandal and promoting the idea that homosexual men in particular could be upright and respectable citizens then in the 1970s, the gay rights movement was came along, and that, of course, dates back to uh, the Stonewall Inn riots in, in 1969 in New York, uh, which really led to the, um, the the gay rights movement, which is altogether more radical, um, challenged um, norms of capitalist society, challenged heteronormative norms of um bourgeois life mm-hmm. and uh, drew on ideas from um, feminism, Marxism, pacifism and, bla- and, and black rights and presented um, homosexuality, homosexuality not as some abnormal behaviour but an innate part of the makeup of an oppressed minority group and developed the idea of coming out as an essential part of claiming one's true personhood. And so gay rights was much more radical, much more, if you like, left-wing, much more progressive. And in New Zealand, that was launched in 1972 with uh, a demonstration in a park in Auckland, uh, Albert Park, which is right next to the university campus. And so gay rights uh, groups were formed throughout the country and were active throughout the 1970s. And that that was the, 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 the movement, really, that... Hmm. I guess, fed into the law reform campaign. But in the law reform campaign, there were many, many different groups of, or, or there was a wide range of, of opinion being being drawn on. And so I guess you asked about the difference between overseas and New Zealand. I think part of the, um, part of the thing is that in, in New Zealand, I guess we were perhaps a few years behind um, other hmm. parts of the world. Um, we also, though, had, as I said, uh, this, this campaign for law reform coincided with the AIDS epidemic. And, and that, mm. I think, was a particularly important driver in, in the New Zealand situation. Cool. Thanks. Um, uh, thanks for that. Um, now, getting into the, um, uh, the, the, the people, uh, the stories in the, in, in the book, um, one thing I found that uh, th- there was a commonality uh, in terms of the importance of the point of uh, or the event or the ritual of coming out, um, and I felt that there was a lot of uh, precursors to that and the effects to that uh, uh, to uh, 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 to these people. So um, my question around it is that as time has passed, um, has that ritual maintained? its importance or with the acceptance in society after several reforms coming through, um, it has become more acceptable and uh, casual is not the right word, but um, less painful. So I think you've, you've got to remember that the interviews in this book, the earliest ones were done in, in uh, 2012 and the, the latest one, the latest couple were done in, in um, 2020 and 2021, but the bulk of the interviews were done prior to 2016, 2017. Mm. So we're already looking at an experience that in some ways may be historical, that mm. the experience of people now coming to, to maturity may be different yet again. And yet for the guys that I spoke to, um, I think almost without exception, there is still this point of having to claim one's identity, as we say, to come out, to say, 
I am gay, this is who I am, or whatever words people want to use, queer. Um, one person spoke also of his or their experience with, um, with uh, gender and wanting to be non-binary. Mm. So there is always a point at which people feel the need to define themselves. And the re reason for that is that there is a, if you like, a, an accepted norm for the majority, that the norm is still heterosexuality. And for many people that I spoke to, there's still the, there was still the perception of the need to define themselves against that norm as different. Now, I know and I hear anecdotally from young people coming through growing up now that that may be changing in some, some environments um, and that there may be at least uh, parts of the community where young people coming through don't need to go through that coming out process. They just simply engage in the relationships with whoever they want to engage with. But for the guys that I spoke to, it was still a still an important milestone and particularly people seem to go through stages they'd often come out to their friends before coming out to their parents yeah i I, I saw that in in some of the stories uh, um where they suddenly realized that they haven't told their parents yet uh, mm. after putting it on facebook um, yes yeah. yeah and it seems to be that and maybe it's true of, of, of many, many different sort of aspects of, of oneself that people find it easier to talk to their friends about things than they do, do to their parents. Mm. Um, but coming out to one's parents remains or remained a, an important part of the process of establishing one's identity uh, in the, in, amongst the guys that I spoke to. And also I saw that depending on the family an ethnic um, um, uh, makeup of the family, uh, it could be more than just the parents, because I, I think it was a, a Tonga story in which uh, they were the parents and then um, he had to go and had a chat with his grandfather. Yes, that's right. And depending on the... Um the importance of extended family networks, uh, then coming out with those to those other parts of one's networks is really important. In fact, in, in Tonga's experience, Tonga is uh, of Maori heritage and describes his the importance to him of, of his Maori identity as much as his gay identity. And the experience that he described was actually of going to his grandfather's grave and talking to his grandfather at his grandfather's grave and saying, well, I think his words were, I guess, um, I guess I'm homo was, I think, yeah. what he, he said exactly. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And I really liked his last line uh, in his story. He said, uh, all boats will rise up with my tide of pride when he's talking about um, identity. So I just wanted to get into the identity um, uh, aspect of uh, sexuality and family and ethnicity. Um, I did find that there were certain struggles uh, within, within the people um, 
dealing with the, the, those aspects of, uh, of being a human. Um, can you elaborate on that? How, 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 did you, how, do you, how did you feel about that? And how, how does one um, uh, align um, sexuality with other identities? Yes, one of the things that I found from the people I spoke to was that particularly for people with a, um, from a non-European ethnic background, and I spoke to some people from a Maori background, I spoke to some people from a Pacifica background, uh, and, and, and a couple of people from Asian backgrounds. Um, for some of those, their identity or their cultural identity was as important or more important in the first instance than their gay identity. And one of those was Jonathan Selu, who is of Samoan heritage. And he describes how uh, he, he, he was from a, a, a his, his father was Samoan, but his mother was, was spoke English. And so they initially only spoke English in the home. And then at high school, uh, he started learning Samoan and embracing his Samoan identity. And that was a hugely important pro part of his process. And he had to do that and claim his identity as Samoan before he got to the point of coming out and claiming his identity as gay. And we all also talked about Tonga Paruta Neha, uh, who similarly, it was very important for him to establish and claim his Maori identity and not let that be subsumed by what he saw as um, a very Western Americanized model of being, being gay, which, and, and I think this is probably true, that, that the commercial um, presentation of, of, of gay life is often very consumerist. It's often very, um, um, very uh, self-focused. Um, and he, he was very adamant that he, didn't want to buy into that model of being gay, that mm -hmm. being gay had to be something that was part of his cultural heritage, uh, part that, that didn't, didn't um, um, wipe out or didn't, didn't erase his, his mm. cultural identity. Yes, and I, I did um, feel that narrative flowing through across many stories that there was um, um, a bit of... Uh, backlash towards the stereotypical um, portrayal. So that brings us to the, the stereotypes. Now, um, the, I found that the, a lot of people had that struggle because there was a stereotypical idea in, with, during their school time uh, amongst their friends, and that was the main um, main hindrance. I found it myself. Um, I'm not. Um, I, I, I'm not uh, uh, gay. I'm a cis um, and a heteronormative uh, cis male. And um, even when I told certain people about um, my interview and the book that I was focusing on, I did find some comments coming through. So do you think there's a still some work going to be needed in culture? Because um, I found that it's, uh, it's, it's an ongoing uh, process. Very much so. Yeah. I think that there, is, um, there are different discourses that are prevalent in different parts of society. And certainly in New Zealand, there is one discourse which is around, very much around acceptance and normalization of different sexualities and different gender presentations. And that's probably very much part of the discourse of public life, if you, uh, um, if you like, uh, if within uh, government, within teaching, within public institutions like libraries, mm. um, that's very, uh, within uh, academic circles, there's very much that, that discourse. I think there is probably also a somewhat um, more uh, reactionary discourse, which is perhaps not less well, not, not so well heard. 
and um, perhaps not so clearly, well, not so publicly articulated often, but I think Mm. that still circulates. Um, And I think that is, as you say, there is still work to be done in terms of promoting uh, the acceptance of a range of different ways of being in the world. Yes. Um, with the, keeping um, going, keeping the thread of um, identity as well. There was um, there were religious narratives as well. So there was there was quite a lot of um, openness to the acceptance of religion. Um, and then there the, the, were some parts where there was um, uh, religion was not uh, looked upon as a as a favorable aspect. For, for me, I think the what I gathered was that I mean the colonial time led to the uh, introduction of uh, Christianity as well, and that has seeped through our culture up, up till up till now. Um, but do you find in your um, two experiences uh, b- between the previous book and the current book, the attitude towards religion have changed? I think actually there were some similarities in experience. And one of the, um, one of the threads that comes through is that people who have grown up in conservatively Christian environments do struggle more and do face more internal com- or internalized conflict with their sexuality. Yeah. And so I think there is still a lot of negative messaging from the conservative elements of the Christian church around the undesirability or the unacceptability of being gay. And there are also narratives of in the book or one or two anyway, of people for whom being gay was something that evolved alongside an active Christian faith, mm. which was developing in a more progressive environment and in a more tolerant and open environment. So it's not so much the opposition of Christianity as such, but it's the conservative elements mm. or conservative elements within the, the, the Christian church that in fact, uh, present considerable obstacles to to um, young gay people growing up, and that that remains a concern, and I think it probably remains a concern even today. And I guess one of the things I wish is that people would read not only these stories, but the stories in my previous book, and all the other so many thousands of stories of. Of, of gay people and queer people around the world, um, which say time and time again that one's sexuality is an innate, is experienced at any rate as in an innate part of oneself. Mm. And we could talk a little bit more about identity and the constructs of identity, but the experience of people that I spoke to is that their sexuality is something that is deeply a part of them and it is not something that is chosen. Sometimes it's not something that is desired. And so the journey is to find acceptance and ways of being and ways of loving and ways of being in relationships um, that are compatible and concordant with one's sexuality. Mm. It is, um, um, I found it really intriguing because um, uh, as I committed to they communicated to you through the emails. I, I'm, I'm, I'm new in, in New Zealand, about uh, 10, 11 years, and, I, and I'm from uh, Pakistan, which is a very conservative uh, um, Islamic country. So um, the, the, ins- the, the, the conservative basis in, in religion that um, presents itself um, to uh to the general uh, the, the general congregations um as opposed to um homosexuality or any or any um um uh identity basis based on uh, gender uh as well um so um i think that new zealand is 
on its way uh, a little bit further. And in Pakistan, we need a lot more work, uh, a lot more work to do. Now, we there was I, I, wanted, I really wanted to talk about internalized um, homophobia. So me from a colonized uh, country from Pakistan and, and in, 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 in colonialism, there is a theme of internalized racism. So can, can you elaborate on internalized homophobia? Yes. So the idea is that, well, the concept is that people growing up or, or gay or queer people growing up take on board often subconsciously a, a, a large number of negative messages around homosexuality or around being gay or being queer. And it is one of the things I found in, in talking to these the, the, the participants in this project, that often those messages are quite subliminal and come from all sorts of uh, avenues. It, it may be from kids making comments in the playground, you know, oh, that's so gay. Mm. It may come from comments in the uh, portrayals in the, in the media. It may come from things that are unintentional things that are said by um, people around around you, um, parents, adults, other, other members of the community. Um, so often it's not even direct messages like being homosexual is wrong, but it's subtle and insidious messages around this being something that's not quite desirable. It, it, and, can it be classified of something like uh, a, a bit of a microaggression uh, in 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 current terms those, those sorts of things as well yes yeah. yes mm. yeah those little mm. and often slightly insidious mm. uh, put downs and um you know I, when i was growing up this is going back a generation prior to the ones that i spoke to but you know pufta was a term of abuse you know, yeah. a generic term of abuse um and referred to anyone a man who in any way was deviated from you know norms of you know, cultural, culturally determined norms of masculine behaviour. Yeah. So, and 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 you know, anyone who was outside the norm, if you're a little bit literary or artistic, or mm. um, uh, dressed more uh, flamboyantly, or you know, you, you could be at risk of, of of being abused in that way, even if you weren't uh, homosexual. Um. So a whole lot of little, very subtle um, messages that come through. And so the idea of internalized homophobia is that people come to see something in themselves as being, as being bad, and that can have effects on self-esteem. Uh, obviously, it can have quite, I think, quite pervasive effects on how you present and operate in the world, on, mm. on, on your sense of uh, aspirations on your sense of ambition. Uh, it can affect your perceptions of relationships. You know, I was, when I was growing up, one of the messages that came through very strongly from all sorts of sources was that um, gay relationships uh, didn't last. And in fact, many of them do, and many of them last very successfully. But, mm. but there was the idea that um, if you were gay, you were destined to a, a life of heartbreaking affairs. Mm. Um, I mean, that's, that's one example. That's not necessarily relevant to the people that I spoke to, but that's mm. one that I, I brought through. Um, so yes, the inter effects of internalized homophobia can be insidious and, um, and, and long lasting and even relates to things, portrayals in the, um, in the, in, in the, in, in the gay world and on dating apps and things like that, the desirability of being, straight acting, for example, which was something that came through. People would speak about, they'd be on a dating app. And mm, um, I think Tonga, Tonga mentioned yeah, it. In his, yeah. yeah. People, and, and so this whole thing that even though you were gay, you were wanting to be seen as acting, acting straight. So that's, you know, that's another example of that, mm. as you say, internalized homophobia. And I think there probably is a very valid parallel with um, inter internalized racism. Yes, um, it is. I mean, it's not related to the book, but I, I'll share it uh, with you anyway. It's um, while growing growing up in Pakistan, it's always um, the the general narrative uh, in terms of the shade of the color 
how it associates with uh, your capabilities in society does create through time um, an internalized displacement of thoughts within you that uh, you feel that the shade of your skin is somehow related to how uh, how intelligent you are or what is your prospect of getting employment um so there there certainly are uh, parallels in that that's why i i i specifically that question because it it is uh, quite uh, pertinent um okay so uh, just coming towards the 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 wrap up i, I really wanted to discuss about um almost everybody talked about how they would label themselves uh, 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 either either gay or queer and there was a discussion in almost all um uh stories around um uh, using gay at a different situation and queer as a different at a different situation um and and and, and that that presented to me a very thoughtful um, understanding of identity by uh, by all the participants. Um, my question was the importance of claiming back the words that were um, essentially maybe in the past can be used, uh, might have been used um, offensively. Um, is that an important thing um, within uh, the gay community and, and within the LGBTQI community? Uh, because it is essentially in 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 immigrant community, it is that way. So I just wanted to put that forward to you. And again, very much so. Um, the use of the word queer, mm. which um, in previous generations was a term of abuse, and certainly when I was growing up, to call someone queer was uh, was was a derogatory term. And so that's been reclaimed as an act, almost of political activism, mm. uh, and embraced. And I guess to take a step back, because I started this project in the context of a, of a master's degree, I was interested in constructs of the self and I was interested in the, um, if you like, from a theoretical perspective, the concept that the self is something that is, uh, that, that is constructed from social discourse uh, or from social narratives. And I was operating within a, I guess a post post structuralist sort of academic framework. So um, that motivated some of my inquiry. So I was interested in the ways in which people created their sense of who they were, or in the idea that people drew on prevailing social narratives to construct their sense of self. And as I said earlier, that theoretical um, framework stands in some tension to the repeated experience of people when you speak to them that their sexuality is something that is inherent in them, that is innate in them, and that's something that's been borne out by other oral historians uh, as well. And there's been a little bit of a few papers written about that in academic circles, that tension between prevailing um, social constructionist or post-structuralist narratives around the mutability of the self. Uh, versus people's lived experience of the self as being something that is innate. Um, that's by, uh, somewhat by the way of a digression. But I was also interested in the language that people use to describe themselves. And so there's been, a, a, a if you like, there are different phases of language. So gay um, is used by many men who feel romantic and sexual attraction to other men but it also implies something of a um, maintaining a essentially male gender identity. Yeah. And it implies something of a sense of operating more or less within established social, um, social frameworks, whereas queer is much more often in usage, it's much more radical in its applicability. It's much broader in its applicability. Uh, it refers to a, a much more generalized, if you like, rejection or moving away from heteronormative standards. So queer can mean a whole lot of things. It can mean a difference in your 
sexual, ide- sexual identity, it can mean a difference in your gender identity, it can mean a difference in your gender presentation or the way in which you construct relationships. So it's a much broader category. Mm. And I was interested to find the, uh, to, to, to record people's experience of the language that they they used to think about themselves. Mm. So it was, it was part of your, uh, pa- part of the questions that you asked during the interview. Yes, yes, All that right. was one of the specific things that I inquired about. Okay, thank you. Um, I mean, that was a, it, it was fascinating to talk to you, and your book is very engrossing, and it's it's fantastic because there are uh, it, it, it is a multitude of emotions one goes through each reading each stories, and uh, it's I, I would recommend it for anyone to uh, buy it and and read it in a go, and it's it's. Um, uh, it's and I was amazed how um, everybody was so articulate in telling their stories, um, which was uh, which I which I loved, and I felt that everybody was um, very in touch uh, with their feelings when they did uh, have a chat with you about it. Um, so the last thing um, I would ask that. Did you find barriers uh, that pe- uh, that people uh, had um, opening up to you? Um, these participants had opening up to you because they are very personal stories. I was actually quite uh, not surprised, but moved mm. and honoured that people, so many people were willing to share so openly about their lives and in some cases in in quite intimate detail Mm. and uh, i've talked a little bit people have asked me a little bit about this elsewhere that i think a big part of that is 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 creating an environment where people feel that they're heard and respected and that their story is is welcomed and my interviews would often last four hours. Sometimes I, I, I went back and did a second session. So having plenty of time for the interview was, was a critical aspect of, of the process. Mm. And the other thing is that I think and it goes back to this idea that, uh, and one person said that, um, Anthony Bailey said, it, said in his story that um, he grew up in a very conservative ho- home in which uh, homosexuality was was a was a um, was not something to be spoken of, and he finishes his uh, his story by saying um, the experience of participating in a book being written about the experiences mm. of gay men mm. has been a sharp contrast to the themes of my life. Repression mm. and silencing, pathologizing, and invalidation have been replaced by the opportunity to be vocal, to be heard, to be normalized, and to be valued. Uh, and whatever I have to say, I have the space and permission to say it. And so for a lot of people, I think the experience was actually quite validating. And for a few, and the experience, if you think about how often in life do we have the chance to sit down and tell our story to someone over three or four hours and have that person listen and inquire and, and, and unwrap the detail of it, Mm-hmm. That is actually quite a rare experience. Yes, and I think, I think several, a number of the participants found that experience valuable in its own right. Quite apart from the outcome, which is what I hope will be a, a set of stories that will be valuable as a historical document, uh, as a record of a particular time and place in in history and in the history of this country, Aotearoa, New Zealand, um, and in the history of, of queer lives um, around the world. Mm. Well, thanks, Mark. I have so many questions. We can talk for hours around this, um, but um, we, we'd have to wrap this up. Thank you so much for taking the time out and being open about uh, your work. Uh, what's, what's coming next? Well, um, I've got... Um, I've got a couple of things percolating. Mm -hmm. Um, I do have a collection of photographs 
uh, of a what for many is a, a is an institution in in New Zealand mm-hmm. um, gay gay life a, a place called Autumn Farm which is a a retreat uh, in the South Island and I've got photographs over that I've put, taken there over ten years and that's percolating in the background to be to be worked on and finished off and edited and brought to some sort of resolution. Oh, that is fantastic. I'm looking forward to mm. it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, and possibly some, some sort of more personal memoir because I was um, uh, realized as I was editing these stories that, um, that uh, there were many points of resonance with my own life. And, and I, th- I thought that almost as, a, uh, almost as a response to having shared so many other people's stories, um, sharing mm. something of my own might be, might be of value. So those are two things that are that, that are percolating at the, in the background at the moment. That's most definitely uh, myself and my our listeners will be looking forward to it. I, I did I do remember that in in the introduction part you did mention uh, fleetingly that it it did it did uh, come up and they, they, this will be part of a a memoir later. So it's kind of mentioned as a cliffhanger within the book. Mm, mm, yeah. Yes, so yes, yes. Uh, so. Um, Thank you so much. The book is A Queer Existence. It is available um, uh, through Massey University Press and anywhere you uh, buy books from. Uh, it's available online. I checked uh, through different platforms as well uh, to buy and order it. So um, I would suggest everybody go and buy it. Now, um, I would like to thank you, Mark, so much for joining me and hopefully uh, we'll talk again over your next project uh thanks very much ed yeah it's been it's been um a pleasure to be here and pleasure to be part of us thank you